I have this direct interest in changing the world. That's why I decided to do economics and not something else. Have you ever been presented with a problem so big you simply don't know where to start? Sure, world peace or access to the necessities like clean drinking water, food, and education for all are things we may want, but you'd have to be dreaming to think you can actually achieve them. Or would you? I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring how small experiments can lead to major results. On the scale of big global problems, poverty is at the top. Ending poverty is number one of the United Nations' 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The World Bank Group has two main goals, to end extreme poverty and promote shared prosperity. Oxfam International's key six goals are all centered around ending poverty. And this is just a tiny scratch on the surface of a very long list of international organizations and collectives working to eradicate or reduce poverty around the world. Today's guest, economist and Nobel Prize winner Esther Duflo, has not only devoted her career to tackling poverty, she's pioneered a new methodology to actually address it. Instead of asking how can we end poverty, Duflo focused on smaller and thus by nature easier to answer questions, several of them. And her work on the topic could be more crucial today than expected. According to the World Bank Group, extreme poverty is no longer on the decline. The onset of COVID-19, coupled with climate change and ongoing conflict, resulted in a rise of global poverty rates, something that has not happened in nearly 25 years. The World Bank Group predicts that 120 million people are living in poverty due to the pandemic alone, and they expect that number to rise to 150 million by the end of 2021. Part of Duflo's magic is her ability to offer very tangible solutions to inherently complex or even abstract issues. So let's dive in. To get us started, how would you describe the work you do and the process behind it? So at a very broad level, of course, I work on poverty and in particular poverty in poor countries. I like to do things that have immediate policy implication or quasi-immediate policy implication on top of telling me something about how people behave. Sometimes it involves setting up research projects directly with the government where the lesson would be immediately carried over to how they are doing their things. Or sometimes it could be uh, one step removed, but designing something that someone might be interested in to take up at some point. Randomized control trials is what I do for a living. And the principle of a randomized control trial is you have a group of, say, villages, and then you randomly select some fraction of them where you implement a new program, and then you compare to the status quo. The idea that randomized control trials, which are essentially social experiments, could address poverty was not something many researchers had done before Duflo. The conversations about poverty had always centered around aid. Some development economists believed aid was the most effective tool to alleviate poverty, while those on the opposite side argued that simply providing more and more financial aid could do more harm ultimately than good. Rather than engage in this binary view, Duflo and her co-researchers set out to examine how the disadvantaged think and make decisions. Carefully controlled randomized trials were the foundation, but they also did something else. They spoke with the people in the communities they worked with. And perhaps even more unexpectedly, they listened to what they had to say. 
I have this direct interest in changing the world. That's why I decided to do economics and not something else. So that sort of gives me a series of topics that I think about. For example, immunization is one that I've been just uh, very passionate about because it seems such an unforgivable waste that 20 million kids each year are not uh, getting measles or um, DTP-3, which could save their lives. The vaccine is there. We should do something about getting it to the kids. So a few years ago, I worked with an NGO to conduct a randomized controlled trials to investigate the effect that small incentive could have on immunization. In that program, what we had done is actually two treatments. One is improving the supply of immunization, making sure that there are camps that are very regularly organized. And another that was on top of that, giving people small incentive for immunization. We found that already improving the supply improves immunization, but it's very expensive to do. So if you add a little bit of incentive that increases immunization further, it's very, very cheap to do. So that's actually more cost-effective than just having a supply intervention because you leverage your supply intervention by giving this demand incentive. Since then, I've been knocking at every door, trying to convince people that we should try that on a larger scale to see whether it could be embodied in the government programs. And it worked, eventually. The government of Haryana, a large state in northern India, the same state that Delhi is found in, was interested. In some districts of Haryana, immunization rates were incredibly low. While Duflo and her co-researchers sought out a government partner, they'd also been conducting work related to social networks and how influential people in those social networks can change other people's behavior or opinions. We had devised a very simple method to identify who is influential in the social network. The method is very simple. You just ask some people in the village. That sounds very trivial, but people had not really thought that one could do that. In the experiment, we worked on a very large scale in seven districts in Haryana, and we started by working to create a little um, app that the nurses could carry with them on the field to register all the immunization that they gave to kids. That provided an information system for those seven districts. And then that was used to do a number of things. Number one, in some places, randomly selected immunization incentives in the form of cell phone recharges, which is very easy to administer. In some places, uh, this social network intervention where we would identify the influential people, go talk to them and try to enroll them as sort of change agents. And for some individuals, we also send targeted reminders of your child is due for such immunization. And then we rolled out those on a very large scale and we looked at the effect. What we're finding is that providing incentive works, in particular if the level of incentive increases with its shot, and that this change agent intervention also works just as well, though it is much cheaper. Those are our results. And in combination, they work even better. That's kind of the best policy is to do the two together. Was there ever a time where one of these experiments really surprised you with the results? India has a policy of affirmative action for women in politics at the local level. So in every election, a set of villages are randomly selected and they must elect a woman as the head. And because it's randomly selected, you can compare those villages which have had experience of having a woman leader with villages that haven't had that experience. The first thing we show is that women do different things than men. And in particular, they invest more in the type of public goods that are most useful for women. Uh, water being the chief among them. So they do more water infrastructure. That was already an interesting result because most people would have guessed that those women aren't actually doing anything really 
different, but that was not true. We looked at people's aspiration for their children, and in particular for their daughters, after they've been exposed to a woman leader versus not. And what we found is that in villages which have had a woman leader, the gap in aspiration, in particular educational aspiration between boys and girls, lowers in places that have had a woman. And as a result, you have girls staying in middle school and not dropping out. So by exposing, in this case, young girls to a woman in power, they actually adjusted their own aspirations to what they deemed possible to achieve. Has there been a topic or an area that you've struggled to address through randomized control trials? Micronutrients is really one of the vexing issues that we have had the chance to work on. In India, the main issue that people are facing is not a deficit of calories, but it's a deficit in nutrients. They don't get enough iron, they don't get enough various kinds of vitamins. If we focus on iron, in principle, we know how to get iron into people's. For example, you could take iron pills, or you can get wheat that is supplemented with iron, or you can get salt that is supplemented with iron. The technology exists, but getting people to change their habit and what they do and what they eat and what they feel comfortable with is actually extremely difficult. I've been involved with a series of experiments now of trying to get people to consume iron in various forms, and none of them were successful, including providing salt that is fortified both with iron and iodine, where even if you give it for free, people are not consuming it. They frankly don't think it's such a big issue. They've always eaten like that. So what's good enough for them should be good enough for their kids. And therefore, it's very difficult to change uh, people's uh, habits. Even though Duflo and her collaborators were seeing positive results in some of their earlier work, not everyone was convinced by their methods, which is one of the reasons Duflo co-founded the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, or JPAL, at MIT nearly 20 years ago. Initially, they were a small team of people who had run randomized control trials and were working to convince governments, international organizations, and other economists that randomized control trials were a productive way to address these issues. JPAL was founded as a way to bridge the gap between the world of research and the world of policy, and to provide a structure around that bridge. At the time, it was Sandil Mulainat and Abhijit Banerjee and myself. Our first uh, recruit was uh, Rachel Glenister, who had uh, both uh, research experience and intense policy experience. She had been working at the IMF for many years. What we were able to do with our leadership is to progressively grow a network of affiliates, which are everywhere, who are doing this type of work on issues of poverty, broadly defined. And what kind of things does JPAL offer to its members? First of all, we are helping them with their research in various ways, so providing help with hiring research assistant. We have access to pools of funding, so we apply for large grants that we can then re-grant to our members. We have improved the quality of the research, the kind of the protocols that you need to, to follow to ensure that ethic rules are all satisfied and scientific integrity is respected and transparency in research is there, etc. All of this improves the quality and makes it a little bit easier to conduct research on these topics. Today, JPAL has offices on every continent with a network of over 200 affiliated professors at universities around the world. Where does this passion and commitment to fight poverty come from? 
it's a combination of things. A large part of it comes from my upbringing. My mother is a pediatrician, and although she had a, a you know, city office, she was also spending some time working with organizations of pediatricians, helping kids uh, living in poverty or victim of war. So she was traveling back and forth to, to countries like Rwanda or El Salvador, Haiti, when I was growing up and kind of conveying what she was finding. From a very early age, me and my siblings were all aware of how extraordinary our plight was compared to you know, what we could have been dealt with and the responsibility, I guess, that it gave us. So we got exposed to poverty and that you can do something about it. It's not a fatality. I didn't conceive of this as a profession. I conceived of this as sort of my hobby in a way. Suddenly it dawned on me that economists have this really wonderful uh, position in life where they can really think deeply about issues, but when they have something to share, they'll be in a position to share it with policymakers. So that's when I sort of formed, at the time, vaguely defined project of learning economics to affect the world, and then progressively figured out how it could be done in a you know, series of steps. While I mentioned it briefly at the top of the episode, it bears repeating that Duflo is not just a brilliant and compassionate analytical thinker, she is also a Nobel Prize winner. When she was awarded this most prestigious prize in her field in 2019, she made history. She was the second woman to be awarded the prize, ever. And she was also the youngest person to win in the category of economic sciences. If there was ever a time to reimagine what the typical economist looks like and sounds like, I can think of no better candidate than Esther Duflo. Don't miss our next episode where we'll be exploring how to address another large and complex issue, inequality. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.